to build other people up. Humiliation. Embarrassing somebody, maybe. Like, if there's like something you can't do by yourself, you can just stand up and try to do it. Humble means to be um, honest and near the ground. Like, on the ground, praying to God. Being honest, like, with God, like, confessing that you did something. We um, made dinner for the family, and then I had to um, serve them by, like, um, um, yes, like, giving them, actually, like, giving them a menu and stuff. So it was hard to serve them with that, because it took a lot of effort. Jesus, if, if you have one person and you love everyone in the world. Isn't that awesome? Good morning, everyone. My name is Troy. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to our gatherings here at Kettlebrook here in West Bend. Um, This is some of the kids from all three of our sites in West Bend, uh, Jackson, and Kewaskum, kind of wrestling through the question about humility. And I thought they did fairly well. I mean, I think even as adults, we probably struggled to answer those questions of what is humility and what does humility look like, right? Those are not necessarily always easy questions to answer. But we are in a, a short series called Growing Up Again, and the idea behind this series is that those of us who would, who would even say we're grown up as adults, we recognize that very regularly we are confronted with things in our lives that, that cause us to be honest about the fact that we may need to, to grow up and mature more, or maybe grow up again. Sometimes it's the situations we find ourselves in that cause us to grow up. I know from many of your stories that some of you here were in a situation where maybe when you were younger, you had to grow up fairly quickly. Maybe it was that you had to look after your uh, siblings early on in life. Or maybe it was that you had to get a job, not because you wanted to get a job, but because you needed to for the sake of your family. Sometimes our situations cause us to grow up. And sometimes they cause us to grow up very rapidly. Marriage. Marriage is a situation that causes us to grow up. Right? Because overnight, the position of the toilet seat matters. Right? Very quickly, we have to grow up. Or children. Children can cause us to grow up overnight because we go from a place of freedom to slavery. Where, where all of a sudden things like sleep become of just, just amazing treasures. Quiet. A clean vehicle. They cause us to grow up very quickly. Uh, I'm being a little silly there, but some things are sometimes the loss of a loved one. Things that cause us to grow up or grow up again. But for me, personally, I can tell you that um, the thing that causes me to grow up or grow up again most often is not a thing at all. It's it's a person. His name is Jesus. Even after all these years of him walking the earth, regularly I am confronted by, I am convicted by, Jesus confronting me in areas of my life that I need to grow up again in. And so throughout this series, we're looking at four elements that we see Jesus um, specifically focusing on to grow us up again in him. And the first week, Mike talked about the idea of repentance. And last week was winter in Wisconsin. And so Mike did not cover forgiveness. He's going to cover that in a couple weeks. But today we're going to look at the idea of humility. And humility is not something that we often learn as we grow up. That's why we have to grow up again in Christ. 
And it's hard to learn humility when you are the center of the universe. But let's be honest, that's oftentimes what happens. Sometimes our parents unknowingly make us into the center of the universe. And those of us who have children, we, we have a tendency at times to make our, our children into the center of the universe. Now, for me personally, I was born uh, 14 years after my next oldest sister, and I was the only boy. So my sisters have called me the golden child ever since. Okay? Now, in my mom's defense, uh, when I was born, she was going through a really, really rough time in life with a relationship with my biological father. And she almost lost me uh, during delivery. And so just by being born, um, I was a place where she was able to pour her heart, her love, uh, repurpose uh, these kinds of things. And so um, we understand some of those things. But as a result, I grew up being sort of the center of her universe. And as to this day, if you go to my mom's basement, you will find what my wife calls the Troy Shrine. And it, it's, it's prominently still on display there. All my awards from high school are still in the basement there displayed for all to see. But it's not just parents sometimes that can make humility difficult to learn. It's also our culture. I want to give you an example. This is an example. Now, if you're younger here, so if you're 14 or younger, I want to ask you, do you know if you're young what this is? This is not a DVD. What is this? I need someone young to tell me what it is. You don't know, do you? Vi? It's a CD. That's right. It's a compact disc. This was unearthed in a dig, an archaeological dig um, in Utah, dating back, and this is dated back to 1994. This is Bon Jovi Crossroad, okay? One of the best of uh, albums of Bon Jovi. So now, for those of you who are younger, you need to understand something. Back in the old days, in 1994, when you wanted to purchase music, you had to get into a vehicle and you had to drive to a store. And when you got to that store, you would buy a compact disc, about 20 bucks. And when you bought this, what you got was all the songs that the artist decided they wanted to put on this album for you, whether you wanted them or not. So you got living on a prayer, but you also got bad medicine. Huh? Now, this is not what we find today. Because today, uh, the music industry has understood that you can't do it that way because the consumer is king. And to make the consumer happy, you have to allow them to purchase, or maybe even not purchase if you use Spotify, like whatever individual songs to make your individual playlist specifically tailored to you so that the universe can revolve around you. Now, am I saying that I don't benefit from and enjoy the fact that we can individually choose our songs? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if we really were honest, this is just one example of the ways in which our culture feeds into this idea that we are the center of the universe. And you know what's really hard to, to learn when you're the center of the universe? Humility. Humility is really hard to learn. And so if we're going to grow up again, we need to look to one who was humble. And there is nobody, there is nobody who modeled humility better than Jesus Christ. So I'd invite you to grab a Bible this morning and open up to Luke chapter 14 with me. If you're visiting with us, I um, would strongly encourage you. There's brown Bibles underneath your chairs. would strongly encourage you to grab one of those and open up with me and, and read along. We're going to be in Luke 14, which is in, on page 739 in the brown Bibles that you have under your chairs. Again, strongly encourage you to open that up with me and follow along. As you turn to Luke, to give you a little context, if you're not super familiar with this, Luke is what's called a gospel account. It's an account of the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. 
And what we find in Luke chapter 14 in this account is that Jesus has been invited with a bunch of, the, with a bunch of other folks to, to a dinner at the house of a prominent Pharisee. And Pharisees in the New Testament um, are sometimes seen as the bad guys, but really what the Pharisees were is they were the guardians of the law and the guardians of the Hebrew culture. And so Jesus came along and Jesus was kind of a threat to these guys. Because when it came to the law, he would say things like this. He would say crazy things like, you have heard that it was said. He was referring to the law, but I tell you. And so they're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is he saying? And they're always trying to catch him, pin him down, try to figure out exactly what he's trying to say, and maybe even trap him to help him cause to lose credibility. And that's the setting we enter into into Luke 14, chapter uh, 14, verse 1. So I want to read verse 1. Before I do that, let me pray quick. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the parable we are about to read that comes from the lips of your son, Jesus. Father, give us open ears to hear and eyes to see what you are saying through this text and that you would be given glory through it. Help us to be convicted by your spirit and grow us up again in this way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Now I want to stop there. So Jesus is under surveillance, okay? What appears on the outside to be a dinner party is probably more like a setup. And the reason we know it's probably a setup because as Jesus gets there, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a man shows up who stands right in front of Jesus. He's got what's called dropsy. It's swollen limbs. And, oh, wow, I wonder how he got there and why he's there right now. Well, it's because they're trying to figure out. Because Jesus has done some healings before. And I think what they're trying to do is say, is he going to heal on the Sabbath? (gasps) And so Jesus, I think, knowing and seeing through this, he does what he does. Jesus asks questions. So he asks a couple questions and he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Crickets. If your son falls into a well on the Sabbath, you're going to leave him in there? Nothing. They got nothing to say. The trap has been set, but has missed. This is what happens here. So there's no fruit to their trap. They try to catch him off guard, but it doesn't work. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to, to literally, or at least metaphorically, turn the tables on them as he as we move forward it appears that jesus wasn't the only one being watched jesus was doing some watching of his own i want you to skip down to 14 chapter 14 verse 7 let's read this when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table he told them this parable when someone invites you to a wedding feast do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Now, sometimes... When Jesus told parables, people would leave scratching their head. 
Sometimes when Jesus told parables, his disciples would say, hey, what did you mean by that? Can you explain that? This is not the case here. Because this, like, this is so straightforward. Jesus is in the context of people who are at a meal trying to grab the best seats. He tells a parable about people at a meal trying to grab the best seats. There's no way that Jesus tells this parable and it's not awkward. There's no way. But he's kind of like, okay, hey everyone, so hypothetically speaking, let's say you were invited to a wedding feast. You know what you shouldn't do? You shouldn't take the best seats. Because then what's going to happen is someone, I mean, I mean, heaven forbid that someone would come to the party that's more important than you. But let's just say, hypothetically speaking, that would be possible. Someone more important than you would come. And, 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 and their host is going to come to you, and it's going to be awkward for him and you, but he's going to ask you to move down. And as he does that, you're going to be humiliated. What you should instead do is take the lowest spot so that when he sees you there, he says, friend, come on, move up. It's not that complicated of a parable. It's not that complicated. Now, having said that, I want to put us in the context a little bit, so I brought a table up here. Now, the scholars don't know necessarily what the table set up was in this Pharisee's house. We don't know what it was, but we're going to go off of context what it probably would have been. And it probably would have been a table set up in a U form. Joe, I've got a slide of this, I think. So um, there would have been somewhat like this. And so I put a table here. And um, there were sometimes these couches. They, would have, they didn't sit at tables like this. They reclined at the tables like this. It would have sat like this. And um, they would have maybe sat on a lower couch called a triclinium. There's this U-shaped table. And the, the best seat in the house is called the protoclesia. It's this seat right in the middle of the head table. This would be the best seat. The second best seat, which I thought would be at the right hand, actually learned, was back here. It's on the left hand of the person in this spot, probably because it's right in their backside. Um, this is the place of, of honor. And they would have eaten like this. And then you would have went one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and so forth and so on. Now, just a couple weeks ago, my wife and I had a chance to go to a wedding, okay? And you all have probably been to a wedding at some point, and have, you know how it works, right? So you walk in, and as you walk into the reception area, what do you do? What do you do? Where do you, where do you go? You go to your, you got to find this table that's got the, the cards on it, right? Most weddings, you kind of go to this table, and you find your name, and your, the card has what on it? Your name and what? Usually your table might have what kind of food you want, things like that. And so what you do is you find your table name tag, and then you begin to take a walk. And as you take a walk, you begin to realize exactly how important or not important you are to this couple. Okay? And so you find whatever table it is that you sit at. Now, I, I've been blessed to be able to be in many weddings. So I've been able to sit at the head table up front. Also, I've officiated many weddings. So I've been at the table like right in front of the head table with like the parents of the family. Uh, and also, I've had a couple weddings where I've had I got a chance to sit at what I call table 38. It's the one that's kind of part of the party, but might also be part of a different party. Depending on what building you're in, it's the table that I always sit at when our children come with us. Because the, the hosts, they know. They say, okay, we're going to put you out by the bathroom. Okay? So this is kind of an example. I just I was thinking about this because think about Jesus is using this wedding feast imagery. This is as relevant as just this is two weeks ago. It's the same imagery. Another example was a couple weeks back, my boys had gotten some good attendance thing uh, through McLean, and, and they got free Bucks tickets, which weren't free because you had to buy adult tickets with them, whatever. It's a racket. But anyway, so we get there, 
and, and we get, we sit in seat, uh, section 442. You're like, Ugh. so you get there at the Bradley Center. And what's funny is you got your tickets and you've all either done this or had this happen to you. You get there and you're like, okay, 422 row M and then seats. And then someone's sitting in there already. And you're like, I can't get any clearer than this. It's right here. And so there are people sitting in our seats and it's a little awkward because you're like, how could you want to move up to these seats? Like, well, you must have been sitting against the back wall. Okay. So, so you kind of got to ask them to move. It's not that big of a deal. But I was thinking about last year I had a chance to sit on the court at a Bucks game. Never had a chance to do that before. Like James Harden like fell on me, like falling out of bounds. Like this is really cool. You think about the difference between that seat and 442. Now it's one thing to go up to these folks and say, hey, sorry, you're in our seats. It's, it'd be weirder and more awkward if you did that at a wedding, right? It'd be more weird at a wedding. But Jesus is challenging the listeners in this room in the area of pride and humility. And he opens a parable by saying, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast. Now, I don't know why he used the word wedding feast here. Maybe it would have just been because if he said, hey, let's say you're at a dinner party. It's it's already awkward enough. But I think one of the reasons he does this is because if you're invited to a wedding feast, the the assumption is, is that you have some sort of relationship with the bride and groom, right? Even if you're at table 38, you're still there for the sake of the bride and groom. But But let me ask you this. Easy question. If you're going to a wedding reception, who is the reception supposed to be about? The bride and groom. Okay, you're tracking me, right? It's supposed to be about the bride and groom. But it oftentimes isn't, is it? It is still about us. It's about where we sit. It's about how we look. It's about how we will be honored. Here's what pride does. Pride takes the best day of someone else's life and makes it about us. That's what pride does. If you're really a friend to the bride and groom, you'd sit anywhere that would support them and honor them and cherish them. Because it would not be about you, it would be about them. Notice in this parable, when the first person sits down in the place of honor, the host has to come along and say to them, give this man your seat. But notice in verse 10. In verse 10, the host comes to the second situation and says, friend, move up higher. I don't think it's a coincidence that friend is in the latter version and not the former version. Because the first person is not a friend to the bride or groom. Not a friend at all. They're so consumed with themselves, they have to put their own host in an awkward position. Let me take it a step further. In the first scenario, if someone more distinguished comes, Jesus says the host will come and will ask you to move down. In the second scenario, if you have a more literal translation, it says this. It says the host may say to you. It says the host may say to you, and friend, move up higher. Now, I don't want to make this a bigger deal than maybe it was intended to be, but I think it's a big deal, the word may in there, because what it might, what it means is that he may not. The host may not come and ask you to move up. And you know what? It doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Because true humility says it doesn't matter if I move up or not, because it's about the bride and the groom. I think that helps us to say, Jesus, like, it's about your motivations here. Jesus is not giving us some sort of formula for false humility where he's like, hey, I'm an ancient sage. Let me tell you guys a trick I learned. Here's what you do. You go to a wedding feast. You know what you don't do? Okay, sit in a lower seat. They'll ask you to move up. (laughs) Like, it's some kind of reverse psychology. He's not using reverse psychology. He's talking about true humility. With true humility, it's always about the other. Humility is when we think about others more than we think about ourselves. 
Humility is when we are content with others being honored more than we're concerned about ourselves being honored. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. I think if we're honest, there are times when we do something for someone in our life. We maybe will serve somebody. And you know what they do? They don't seem to care. They don't notice. We get our spouse a gift that we worked hard on, and we thought they would literally do a backflip. Well, they didn't. And we get resentful. We post something, and not very many people like it or comment on it. And so we start to get bitter about it. Why? Because it's not, it's not about that. It's about us. We've made it about us. Pride's at work, not humility. And even though, so Jesus is telling this parable, and it's as straightforward as any parable I think we can find on Jesus' lips. For some reason, he still ends it with a summary statement. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Why does Jesus do that? I don't know. I don't know. But I think it may be because this message of humility is so hard for us to get through our thick skulls. He's got to be like, okay, in spite of everything that's happening in front of me in this room, in spite of the fact I'm going to tell this really awkward parable about what's happening in the room, I'm still going to come back and make a summary statement to make sure you get it. And so I think we have to ask ourselves the question, in what ways do we try to exalt ourselves? How do we try to exalt ourselves? You know, I think the easy way now in our culture is to say, well, it's, it's, you know, it's when we maybe put something on Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook and post stuff about ourselves. Look, at we're, we're trying to exalt ourselves. Isn't that maybe true? We do. Hey, look at what I got. Look at where I'm at. Look at what my relationship is like. Blah, blah, blah. Okay? But that's easy. That's easy. Some of you would say, see, I don't do that. Well, you know what else we do? We do the opposite of that. And pride does it. We actually withdraw from people. We say, oh, you am going to withdraw hold myself up, create my own space. Why? I don't need them. There's just so many ways that pride works itself out. Pride has us making sure that we take credit for what we deserve. Pride makes us take credit for things we don't deserve. Pride says, you know what? You need to do more talking than you do listening. Why? Because what you have to say is more important than what they have to say. Your time is more valuable than their time. But Jesus desires for us to grow up in humility. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what does humility look like? Well, according to Jesus, based on this parable, humility is very simple. It is with a right heart's motivation taking the lowest place in any situation. Taking a humble posture. Honoring others instead of ourselves. Now, author Tim Challies has a list of ten marks of humility. I'm not going to go through all ten. Some of them are redundant. I picked five. I want to explain them to you and have us wrestle through some. The first one is this. A humble person accepts rebuke for sin or wrongdoing. Okay, so a humble person accepts rebuke or sin for wrongdoing. In other words, when someone comes to you and confronts you about something, a humble person doesn't automatically go on the defensive. A humble person will say, let me own what I can own in this. That's what a humble person does. Secondly, a humble person complains about their heart, not their circumstances. When we start to complain about our circumstances, things that are going on around us, you know why we're doing that? It's because for some reason the world is not revolving around us like it should. And so a humble person will complain about their heart, not their circumstances. Thirdly, 
A humble person will serve the lowest person in the lowest tasks. And, and Chalice here isn't saying that there are higher people and lower people. That's just being honest with how we see it. And so it's whatever you think or whatever we think are the lowest person, a humble person will serve them and take the lowest tasks and do those tasks. There's nothing that we are above if we are humble. Fourthly, a humble person is content to be eclipsed by others. In other words, others would receive glory and we are not only okay with it, we're, we're good with it. And fifthly, a humble person magnifies Jesus Christ. A humble person magnifies Jesus Christ. So, Joe, hit the slide one more time to light him up again. Let's do an honest assessment. Take a look at these things and ask yourself, how am I doing on these things? And let me tell you this. If you think, if you, think you nailed it, you failed it. Okay? Let's take an honest assessment of these things. Now, if you look at these bullets... The first four bullets, take out the word sin on top of that first one. Take out the word sin and the rest of the four, first four bullets are bullets that, they're great. They're great ideas. Like you could post them on Facebook. You could teach them in a public school. No one's going to have a problem with that. And everyone's going to be like, this is totally great. I like those things. It's the fifth bullet, though, that I think Jesus is really pointing to in this parable. It's the fifth bullet, if I was to be really honest with you, which, which I believe makes the, is the only way the other four are possible. The fifth one says a humble person magnifies Jesus. And the reason why a humble person magnifies Jesus Christ is because Jesus Christ is the only person who's ever lived who is worth magnifying, who is worth exalting. A humble person magnifies Jesus because we're confronted by Jesus and we realize when we're faced with Jesus Christ, there is nothing in us that is worthy of magnifying when compared to Him. There is nothing in us that can compare to Him. I said earlier that there are a couple of reasons why I think Jesus used this idea of a wedding feast. I think He speaks of a wedding feast in this parable because I think He's thinking of His own. Because Jesus' entire life, his death, his resurrection, were meant to point to a wedding feast. And the last book in Scripture is a book called Revelation. We get a glimpse of the kingdom of God, and that glimpse is described in a way that's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus came that we might be invited. Jesus came that we might have a name card. At that feast. The word invited is six times in just these five verses we read. Invited, summoned, called. We do not deserve an invitation. We do not deserve a place at the table outside of Jesus Christ. Because what we would be doing instead is we'd be scrambling around trying to get the best seats. Only concerned about ourselves and not our host. That is not the kingdom of God. The Father knew that, though. And so Jesus came to make the invitations possible again, that those not deserving of God's kingdom feast could have a place at the table. When Je- Family, when Jesus says, someone more distinguished than you may have been invited to the wedding feast, there is no way he's not talking about himself. There is no way he is not thinking about himself. Because I can imagine these guys scrambling for the best seats in the house and they're oblivious to the fact that the most distinguished guest they could ever have 
in the world in history is in the room. And they're too busy to notice, scrambling to make much of themselves. And then when Jesus says, take the last place, you know why he said that? Because it's exactly what his entire life was. It was him taking the last place where the most distinguished guest this world could ever know was taking on flesh in their midst, taking the lowest position, but the Father was going to exalt him. And as he was exalted and on his way to make his rightful place, he would be honored. Now, I don't want to, as I close here, I don't want to get too nerdy on you, but I've got to show you some nerd stuff here, okay? found something in verse 10. Jesus says in verse 10, Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at, you, at the table with you. Jesus uses a strange word for honor in this text. And so I have a chart, a nerdy chart I want to show you, okay? Um, this is, there's 77 times in the New Testament that the word honor is used. And um, the blue word there, there's two couple words, it's teme and tamao. That's the word that's usually described, as you can see, the bulk of the time to mean honor. That little, little wedge that sticks out there um, is the word that Jesus used here, uses here, and it's a word that's doxa. Doxa is used twice in the New Testament to be translated as the word honor. It's only used once in the Gospels, and it's right here on Jesus' lips. It's the word doxa. And what's amazing about that word is doxa's, the the most often used meaning of that word doxa is worship and glory. It's worship. Now let me ask you this. Do you think that Jesus is trying to tell a parable in this room so that his guests would get the idea that somehow that they would take the lowest place and then somehow be worshipped? No way. No way. Because there's only one worthy of glory and worship. Jesus has more than wisdom about humility in mind here. He has in mind his own glory. That though he took the lowest place, that he humbled himself... And came obedient. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That he would receive the glory and the worship that he is only the one worthy of. That's what he's got in mind here. When it comes to this idea that God himself would take on flesh and enter into humanity, Jeff Vanderstelt makes this comment. He says, imagine a conversation between the angels and Jesus Uh, the idea that Jesus was saying, hey, I'm going to go into the world. I'm going to take on flesh. He says, and imagine the angels ask Jesus, why would you humble yourself like that? And Jesus responds, because I must, because they won't. They won't humble themselves, so someone must. So I will go and humble myself and be for them what they can't be. I will be the humble servant that they were called to be underneath me, but instead I will put myself underneath them so they can ultimately become what they were always meant to be. This is convicting. What relationship do you find it most difficult to be humble in in your life? What role do you find most difficult to be humble in in your life? How about this? How could regularly reflecting on the humility of Jesus Christ change our own hearts and cause us to understand humility better? How can we intentionally exalt Jesus Christ in our midst instead of exalting ourselves? This is my challenge for you. You're going to leave this place in a bit. 
My challenge to you would be have a conversation exalting Jesus Christ. Can we do that? Can we take, a, can we take today and say, I'm going to be intentional about making much of Jesus in one conversation and not myself? These are convicting words that Jesus says. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess to you that we so often are not humble, that it is our flesh that would lead us to pride, to to envy, division. It is our pride that would cause us to scramble and scratch to make much of ourselves. Father, we confess this. We are guilty of this. And this is destructive in our own hearts, in this world. We confess, Father, that that even our own self-righteousness so often is the culprit Humble us, Lord. We thank you, Father, that you do not just call us as your children to be humble. You didn't just say, do this. You sent your Son to model this in ways we can't possibly imagine. In ways that we could never humble ourselves to that degree. But may we see him in the ways that he's humbled himself. And may we then respond in humility ourselves, living lives of humility, putting others in front of ourselves for your sake. And in so doing, pointing to the reason why we're doing that is because of the one who humbled himself to give us an invitation at the wedding feast, Jesus Christ, our King. We pray this humbly in his name. And all God's people said, Amen.